Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. How would you like to have a sexual encounter so intense it could conceivably change your political views? That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1985 road trip comedy, The Short Thing. Produced by Monument Productions, distributed by Embassy Film Associates, it stars John Cusack, Daphne Zuniga, and Anthony Edwards. Directed by Rob Reiner, this movie is rated PG-13 with a running time of 1 hour and 35 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Meet Walter Gibb Gibson, John Cusack, a highly spirited, spontaneous young guy and self-proclaimed junk food addict. After striking out with the girls in high school, Gibb begins his freshman year at an Eastern college full of hope for improving his love life. Enter Allison Bradbury, Daphne Zuniga, prim and proper, well-organized and extremely annoyed by Gibb. The two end up accidentally sharing a ride to California during their Christmas break. Allison to visit her preppy boyfriend at UCLA, and Gibb to visit his best friend, who has assured him of a good time with a guaranteed sure thing. Gibb slowly learns, however, that the sure thing may come once in a lifetime, but the real thing lasts forever. Fine performances and Rob Reiner's witty and tender direction make the sure thing a charmingly funny and special love story. The sure thing. The sure thing. So that was what's on the box. Jason, how are we doing? We're doing great, Bill Bant. I have to tell you, man, I'm in a really good mood after watching this movie for the first time, as it turns out. I should admit, I've watched it a couple of times, thanks to having to do this podcast. This one got me. It was good. It was good. It was was even great. So I'm anxious to talk about it with you, my friend. All right, so this might be really quick for you, Jason. What are your earliest memories of the short thing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a little embarrassed to say I've never seen this film. And I kept, you know, having this image of Cusack falling down a hillside in pursuit of his girlfriend. And I realized I was thinking of the wrong movie. I was thinking of Hot Pursuit, 
which was a big cable watch for me as a kid. But obviously, that's not this movie. So I was wondering why the sure thing wasn't a sure watch for me back then. Then I looked at the movie year that was 1985. That would be the year that this film was released. And according to BoxOfficeMojo.com, the top 10 domestic grossing films of 1985 were from 1 to 10, Back to the Future, Beverly Hills Cop, which was released in December of 84, Rambo, First Blood Part 2, Rocky IV, Cocoon, Witness, The Goonies, Police Academy 2, their first assignment, Fletch, and A View to a Kill. That's why I didn't see The Sure Thing in 1985. Now, the real question is, how or why didn't I see this after 1985? And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't recall this being in the rotation as much on cable. But honestly, I think I was just too busy re-watching all those other movies I just mentioned. So don't get me wrong. I was a fan of John Cusack, and I still am, of course. But if I'm going to be transparent, I only knew him at this time in 85, maybe from 16 Candles. And then I don't really think I caught on to him until Better Off Dead became extremely popular a few years later, uh, even though it was released, I think, the next year. But, you know, it grew in popularity through the late 80s. And then, of course, One Crazy Summer, which we covered on this podcast. And then finally, the wonderful Say Anything. Outside of that, I wasn't familiar with Rob Reiner as a director, only a little bit from All in the Family as an actor. And I wasn't really familiar with Daphne Zuniga as an actress at all. And that's all I got, Bill Bant. What are your earliest memories for the sure thing? Yeah, for me, when it comes to this movie, you think about John Cusack in the 80s, and he's got like the big five films, Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer, Say Anything, This, and Hot Pursuit. And of the five, this is the last one of those I saw. And that was during my 25 movies in five days, which happened in my freshman year of college. And I remember because I love Better Off Dead so much and I love One Crazy Summer. I was expecting that wackiness in this movie that I saw in the others. And this one's a little bit more, I guess, I don't want to say serious per se, because it is a comedy but it's more straightforward comedy than over the top comedy. There is little little moments in this movie. So I think I was actually a little disappointed when I saw it the first time. So I was kind of glad to go back and watch it again with a new perspective. I have to say, watching it now, here's another movie going back and watching it again. After all these years later, I certainly appreciate it more than I did when I initially saw it the first time. I love it, Bill Bant. Thanks for sharing. And you nailed it. I had a very similar experience, even though I hadn't seen it when I was a, a child. I watched it a couple of times because I like to watch it initially to soak up the viewing experience and just watch it as it is. And then the second time I'll watch it to review, obviously, and then take notes, etc. And I almost had the exact same reaction as you. I, I was the first time around. I was like, oh, this isn't as laugh out loud funny as I was expecting. And, and it was a little different than I was expecting at all. I'm going to get into what I was expecting from this film here shortly. But then I rewatched it. I'm like, wow, I really like this movie. This is great, man. I just feel good. It's a straightforward coming of age relationship comedy. And there's actually some development in this. So uh, are, are you ready to get in some initial thoughts, Bill Bend? Go ahead. All right. Here's my first initial thought. Henry Winkler is the executive producer of this. The that Fonz was a surprise. Himself. Yep. I do not aware of that at all. 
And of course, we talked a little bit about Mr. Henry Winkler when we covered Night Shift from 1982 on this podcast. We have mentioned the director, Rob Reiner. He is the son of Carl Reiner, who directed Summer School, which we covered on this podcast. Well, I'm really saying that a lot already. And he himself, Rob Reiner, as I mentioned, is an actor. He's also a writer-director, obviously, and he's well-known for playing that role of Michael Meathead Stivic on 184 episodes of All in the Family from 1971 to 78. And he's had supporting roles in numerous big TV shows and movies since. But focusing on his directorial career in the 80s, listen to this. Rob Reiner directed This is Spinal Tap in 84, The Sure Thing here in 85, Stand By Me in 86, The Princess Bride in 87, and When Harry Met Sally in 89. Not bad. Not bad at all. Afterward, he goes on to direct Misery in 1990, A Few Good Men in 1992, The American President in 1995. Those are the notables, in my humble opinion. My goodness. And on a side note, I definitely thought of When Harry Met Sally after watching this, The Sure Thing, because of the road trip sequence in that movie. And there are some similarities, uh, being that the characters are of college age and are polar opposites, with Meg Ryan being the prim and proper girl and Billy Crystal being the carefree, outspoken type of guy. So I was making some comps here between The Sure Thing and When Harry Met Sally, both directed by Rob Reiner. Moving on to our star, John Cusack. Man, this is why he goes hand in hand with the 80s. You said it, Bill Bant. I'm going to go over it really quick. His 80s hit list, class. 16 Candles, The Sure Thing, Better Off Dead, Stand By Me, One Crazy Summer, Hot Pursuit, Tape Heads, and Say Anything. That's really all you have to say. They're all great. And in my opinion, he actually remains solid and present all the way through the early 2000s. He's in so many good movies. And I'll go back to the late 80s with Eight Men Out. He's then got The Grifters in 90, does some kind of mid movies through the mid 90s. And then he's in my all-time favorite, which is Gross Point Blank in 97. He does Con Air the same year. He's got Pushing Tin. I love that movie from 99. Being John Malkovich, I must have watched that probably 10 to 15 times when that came out in 99. And all the, excuse me, the all-time classic relationship movie, High Fidelity in 2000. He's got Serendipity in 01, Identity, Runaway Jury, and on and on all the way through Hot Tub Time Machine in 2010. Just like hit after hit. They're just great movies. Since then, things have petered off a little bit. But he's still working today at age 57. I thought he was older for some reason. That's an initial thought. I don't know. I, but he's not. He's only seven years older than me. And lastly, John Cusack is from Evanston, Illinois. It's another reason why I like him. Big Chicago fan. Daphne Zuniga, our lead actress, she started her 80s film career with a debut in the slasher film The Dorm That Dripped Blood. What a great title from 1982. And she was on a couple episodes of Family Ties and then this in 85 and then Vision Quest and Spaceballs in 87. She does The Fly 2 in 89, Gross Anatomy. And she does 111 episodes of Melrose Place from 92 to 96 as the character Joe Reynolds. She continues to do a lot of episodic TV through the 90s, then into the late 2000s. She was a regular on the show American Dreams and Beautiful People. She did 40 episodes of a popular show called One Tree Hill from 08 to 2012. And she's gone on to do a lot of smaller films and TV movies all the way up to now. 61 years old, still doing it. She looks great. Here we go. Getting into the meat of my initial thoughts. This is the John Cusack Show. Alongside... John Hughes and the Brat Pack. Cusack is 
well, he is 80s coming-of-age movies. Cusack is amiable, affable, gregarious, undeniably charming. He's tall, six foot two, and he's handsome, but not too handsome. He has a cadence and a delivery that's funny yet natural and tender and angstful. There's something about his performance in these movies that feels grounded, and it's like that here in The Sure Thing. To me, he just he feels present in the moment. He's playful. He's got great comedic timing. And although, yes, at times he is performative, he doesn't feel like he's playing at it. He's not a caricature. For the most part, he's natural. He's the every guy, the guy we want to be, the guy we want to be friends with. Confident, carefree, but ultimately, and most importantly, he's relatable. That's why we loved him in the 80s. We still love him today. This has to be Daphne Zuniga's audition tape for the role of Princess Vespa in Spaceballs. That's an initial thought for me. Princess Vespa, that character is this character, Allison, taken to the next level. There's a couple of times when she yells at Cusack in this, when all I could hear in my mind was, it's my industrial strength hairdryer and I can't live without it. So having never seen this film before and only seeing the cover of the VHS box or DVD cover, and then seeing the opening credit sequence, which is simply a montage of the absolutely gorgeous Nicolette Sheridan in a white bikini sunbathing on a beach off the West Coast. It's fair to say that I was led to believe that a good portion of this movie would take place in sunny California. Spoiler alert, that is not the case. So as I mentioned, I watched this twice. The first time around, I thought it was good, but it wasn't the California coming-of-age sex romp I was expecting. Then upon the second viewing, I appreciated it more for actually having some relationship development. It's a road trip movie, coming-of-age movie. It's a relationship movie. We see these crazy kids go on an adventure and get to know one another and grow to like one another. They may be opposites, but they're both young and they both have dreams and they're just trying to figure things out and they don't know anything. And their ideas about life and each other are always changing. But it's a time when they should be having fun and just seeing what works. Ladies and gents, let's talk supporting cast. Anthony Edwards is in this. Another one of those guys you just gotta love. Crazy to think he was in Top Gun just a year later. So young. Not only was he in Top Gun a year later, but guess who else in this movie appears in Top Gun a year later? If you said Tim Robbins, you would be correct. Tim Robbins is not in this for very long, but he is very funny for the short period of time he appears. And here's an initial thought. I would have liked more Professor Taub in this. She's only in three scenes, and I'm talking about Vivica Linfor as the actress, She's a little older in this, but she is great. And there's an obvious comp here to Sally Kellerman in Back to School, which comes out a year later, being the older, wiser, passionate, thoughtful, romantic, and exuberant English professor who has this poetic, impassioned delivery. Life is the ultimate experience. You have to experience it in order to write about it. Bill Bant and I can relate to that. I mentioned Nicolette Sheridan. Gorgeous. Love the fact that she doesn't have a name in this. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. She is credited as the sure thing. I think that's funny. Look, there isn't much else for me to break down the movie. I already said, I think what I have to say, it's just some goofy fun in it. There's some fantasy daydreams and bittersweet moments as well with some nice reflective moments. I like there's a moment here where uh, Gib and Allison are at a bus station and two homeless men are sleeping on a bench and Gib says, check out those guys. Wonder what they majored in. It's kind of like, oh, okay. There's some nice moments in this, but straightforward, lighthearted fun. It's wild to think that Cusack was only 17 when this came out. I mean, but he's great. Daphne Zuniga's great. They're uh, they're a good match in this. What else can I say? It's a, yeah, maybe a little bit on the surface. It doesn't get too philosophical or deep or complicated. 
but uh, it's an easy going hour and a half. Lastly, anytime I see a movie like this, it makes me really nostalgic for the college days. It reminds me of my freshman year and how I was a bit bold and brash coming out of high school and my freshman relationship, etc. Those were the days you could wake up late for class, throw aerosol deodorant on, tussle your hair, swallow some mouthwash, and be good to go. Or prepare for a cross-country road trip by putting 20 bucks in my pocket, throwing a few change of clothes in a duffel bag, along with a six-pack of Coors Light and a bag of cheese balls loaded with riboflavin. So awesome. Uh, that's it for my initial thoughts. I, I had fun with this. How about you, Bill Bant? I agree with so much what you said for initial thoughts. I don't know if I really have that much more to add. But I mean, the thing with the movie is the opening credit sequence right away, we have Rod Stewart's infatuation playing, and then we have a bikini-clad Nicholas Sheridan, who's getting ready to suntan on, on the beach, and you have all the, the shots of her body, and you know right away, this is this is what the movie's about. This right. girl is the short thing. So it sets up nicely with your uh, main characters, John Cusack and Daphne Zuniga. I did have an issue. There was a couple of scenes in the movie, I wish I was like, Oh, kind of just been in the writer's room with that and made some changes. One of them being the bus scene when Daphne Zuniga gets the ticket and then mm -hmm. John Kuzak doesn't have any money. So he's embarrassed to admit to it. So you figure, you know, Zuniga is going to get on the bus going her way and Kuzak's going to be on his own. But then she decides not to get on the bus. Seemed kind of strange to me. I guess it could fall into Swiss cheese complaints. But I was like, why does she not just buy him a ticket? And then let something happen on the bus where then they get kicked off the bus and have to continue their journey. Every once in a while, there's a scene or two. I was like, oh, if I could just rewrite a little bit, I think I would have made some changes. Gotcha. If I was programming this movie, it's like if I was back at UM and I was programming this for a movie night, it's this and 1934's that happened one night with Clark Abel and Claudette Colbert, which is considered one of the first road trip movies. And if you really read a lot of research, there is um, many comparisons to the two. I did also watch that movie in college for one of our classes and fell in love with that movie also. I think the two of these are a great one-two punch. If you've never seen either of them, please watch them both. But yeah, for me, for coming-of-age movies, John Cusack, to me, was, was the man. I know most people would say John Hughes movies, but for me, it was John Cusack. If you can see watching this movie... Everything else that came after it, this is where it all started. You can see where a little bit of his character from Better Off Dead comes on, a little bit from One Crazy Summer, a little bit of Hot Pursuit, a little bit of Satan. There's all those elements are in this movie. So just for that, it's uh, a fascinating watch. And like you said, too, even with the supporting actor, like, well, Daphne Zanega is not a supporting actor. She's the main. I can't believe two years later, she's Princess Vespa in yeah. Spaceballs. Right. She looks just so much different, seems so much more mature. Anthony Edwards being in Top Gun a year later, I couldn't believe that either watching this. I'm just like, wow. And even Tim Robbins. Just seeing some of these actors and then where they went on from this, it seems like it would have been six, seven years later, but it's just, just the next year or two years later. So that was really fascinating going back. And just so many of uh, character actors. We could probably do six or seven, hey, it's that actor for this movie alone. But I'm glad uh, we're going back to revisit this and uh, dive into it a little bit more. Absolutely. Great thoughts, my friend. I'm just going to tack on one little story because we talk about what we identify and who we identify with in these movies back in the 80s. Last night, I was at 
at an event that I host. It's called the Rock and Bingo Show, presented by Game Night Live. Please check it out. Go to GameNightLive.com. We like to partner with them, and uh, that's owned by my good friend Chris. And that reminds me of the 80s and the high school days. And last night I was hosting this event, and I got to talk about our podcast, Bill Bant, because someone saw on my social media that I was co-host of the All 80s Movies podcast. And we got into it, and this lovely, lovely lady, uh, shout out to Katie, she was like, you know why I think we're so nostalgic for the 80s is the fact that that's when these wonderful coming-of-age movies were released, and we identified with them, and they represented us and how we felt and what we were going through. And I couldn't have agreed with her more. And we started breaking down movies, and I said, well, yeah, we were about to do the sure, the sure Thing, and spoke of Cusack, and that's just it. Like you said, Bill, it's the Brat Pack, it's John Hughes, it's Cusack. That's what we think of when we think of coming-of-age movies from the 80s. Uh, he's the man. That being John Cusack, a main, main representative for us. But it was a real pleasure to talk with Katie. And it's what we love to do. It was uh, in the moment in real time happening. I'm just, I was just thinking, this is a blast. I love talking about 80s movies and why we love them so much. So that's it. Wanted to share. We can move on. Thanks, Katie. You're right on point with that comment. That's for sure. Yeah, we've got a new listener. We're happy to, to have you. Thank you, Katie. We doubled our listenership. <laughs> well played, my friend. All right, let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from The Sure Thing? My first favorite scene I'm calling swimming for attention, or I should say falling into a pool for attention. Okay, so we know that Walter Gibb Gibson, or just Gibb as we'll call him, I imagine, played by John Cusack, is now a freshman at a nondescript Northeastern college where he's having some struggles, some strugs with getting the ladies it's just not like it was back in high school. And we know this because we hear his voiceover narration as he's writing a letter to his best friend from high school, Lance, played by Anthony Edwards, who now has gone to the opposite coast to attend UCLA. So as the voiceover of Gibb ends, we see Gibb sitting in his English class taught by Professor Todd. And then in walks the young and pretty Allison, played by Daphne Zuniga, who sits next to Gibb. We quickly see that Allison is very put together. She's big on taking notes and she's a bit uptight. Basically, the polar opposite of Gibb, who is freewheeling, free-loving, and writes his English assignment essay about his passionate experience eating the perfect piece of pizza. And we learn in between plays during a two-on-two -two football game, which I know Bill Bant loves, a two-on-two -two football game in the quad, that Gibb is flunking English, but that he seems to have taken notice of the attractive Allison and his friend tells Gibb, well, she's out of his league intellectually in that she'd only be with him out of pity. Uh-oh, the light bulb goes off and Gibb immediately forms a plan. Gibb sees Allison go into the rec center and he immediately runs after her. Cut to inside the rec center pool area. We see Allison come out in her bathing suit ready to get some laps in. And Gibb is standing there still fully clothed in the pool area. He's in all of his sweats and he says he's flunking English and would love for her to help him out. And she says, oh, well, nice swimsuit and walks away from him, ignoring him and jumps in the pool while Gibb begins to plead his case. And this is why I love this scene because we have Daphne Zuniga doing laps in this pool while Gibb is walking alongside her poolside, standing, just pacing back and forth as he relays the story. And it's great. I'm going to read it real quick. He says, I flunk English. I'm out of here. 
kiss college goodbye. I don't know what I'll do. Dad will be pissed off. Mom will be heartbroken. If I play my cards right, I get maybe a six-month grace period, and then I got to get a job. And you know what that means. That's right. They start me at the drive-up window, and I gradually work my way up from shakes to burgers. And then one day, my lucky break comes. The French fry guy dies, and they offer me the job. But the day I'm supposed to start, some men come by in a black Lincoln Continental and tell me I can make a quick 300 for just driving a van back from Mexico. When I get out of jail, I'm 36 years old, living in a flop house, no job, no home, no upward mobility, very few teeth. And then one day they find me face down talking to the gutter, clutching a bottle of paint thinner. And why? Because you wouldn't help me in English. No, you were too busy to help me, too busy to help a drowning man. And then he falls into the pool just to get her attention. And the great thing here is she just continues to swim around him, completely ignores him. Cut to right afterward on the stairs. Allison comes a walking down back in her clothes and Gib is soaking wet, just sitting there looking pathetic. And of course, Allison takes pity on him. She says she'll help him. And he asks, well, when? And she pulls out her schedule book and goes through the time slots she has written down and pencils him in at eight o'clock for a study session. And of course, he has to make some sort of quip like, oh, I don't know if I can do eight o'clock. That's when I'm rearranging my sock drawer. And she's like, well, you're going to take this seriously. He's like, okay, okay. So they set their study session date then and there. It's a fun scene. It's a John Cusick show, uh, Cusack showcase, and he's just doing his thing. I love that speech that he gives just looking ahead to his future if he doesn't pass English how it's just going to go down the tubes and it's hilarious. And he's just going off doing the John Cusack thing and the fact that she ignores him. But this is kind of where it all begins because now they start talking to one another in this study date that they have later on in the evening. So fun scene, some good lines in there. I was laughing and I love Cusack uh, just going off. Uh, It was fun to watch. I didn't have Down's favorite scene, but I did love the speech. So I did write it down just in case uh, we didn't touch on it. Awesome. It is a good startup of where their relationship's going to go. Because when they have the study date, even though Gib knows that Allison has a boyfriend, he still kind of tries to put the moves on her and she gets upset about it and basically pushes him over and gives him a kick and walks off. Not only does he not get the girl, he doesn't get the help on his English paper. And the fact that he did the speech to even get her to help him, I thought was a pretty good setup. It is a fun little moment. I did enjoy it, but yeah, it it didn't make my cut for favorite scenes or moments. Yeah, but you make a good point here is what we're seeing is these characters being formulated because we really start seeing them take shape. It's very clear that they are opposites here that, you know, Cusack has only one goal in mind. He's just trying to get laid. And he's trying to be charming and clever and funny using his sense of humor. And we see Daphne Zuniga, who's just not interested. She's willing to help him with his studies, but she has her shit together, put plainly. And that's it. And she's no nonsense. So we're just like, oh, my goodness, how are these two, we think, eventually going to get together? But yeah, some some good character development here. So what's what's your first favorite scene or moment, Bill Bant? Uh, So we're going to jump ahead a little bit. So after the date, not date takes place, we find out from Gib, his best friend, Lance, played by Anthony Edwards, went to school in California. 
and he's trying to get Gib to come out there. And he says he has a sure thing set up for him. So if Gib comes out during Christmas break, he's going to get laid. And at the very beginning of the movie, after the opening scene, Gib's been lamenting about how he hasn't had sex since, I think, junior year of high school. And now in college, it's not working for him either. And it's even worse that his roommate's been getting a steady, uh, has a steady girlfriend. And he's getting laid all the time. So Gib's really just stuck on having sex. And now that Lance has someone for him, Gib's going to figure out a way to get to California. Well, we also find out that Allison has a boyfriend who's in California and she hasn't seen him since the summer. So she's trying to get out there herself and they can't afford a plate ticket. So the school has like a ride share program and they both sign up for it and they both end up being in the same car. And after what had happened previously, they're not in the best of terms. And because of all their fighting, they end up getting thrown out of the ride share. And now they're stranded on the side of the road. And they're still not getting along. And they decide to hitchhike, and a car pulls up and picks up Allison. And Gib can see right away that Allison should probably not get in the car with this person and warns her not to. But at this point, Allison is just so pissed with Gib with everything going on, them getting kicked out of their ride share, that she's going to take this ride anyway. So she gets in the car with this guy, they take off, leaving Gib alone on the side of the road, and we find out that Gib was right. This guy only picked up Allison because he thinks he can take advantage of her, and he drives maybe a mile down the road, and he starts talking, and then he pulls over, and Allison doesn't understand why he did. Um, luckily, Gib knew that this was going to happen, and the guy was driving, was it a pickup truck? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a red pickup, pickup truck. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because all their luggage, yeah, his luggage is in the back in the bed. So Gib was smart enough to actually jump in the back of the truck and sees what's going on. He sneaks out of the back of the truck and then jumps into the car, pretending that he's just a random hitchhiker. I found this scene funny because I think Kuzak was channeling some Roddy Roddy Piper at this moment. That's what he just <laughs> reminded me when he was going off. And he says, thanks for the ride. I've been out here all day. I'm not interrupting anything, am I? And of course, the driver's trying to brush it off. He's like, oh, no, the wife and I are just having a little squabble. Uh, everything's okay. Uh, so Gib goes on. It's not easy getting rides. Do you know what I mean? I mean, most people are real afraid to pick up hitchhikers. I mean, you never know who you might pick up. I mean, I could be some gray slime ball. I mean, a real deranged violet psycho. You know what I mean? I mean, a guy who would rip out your heart and eat it just for pleasure. Talking about a total maniac. You know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? And of course, this is making the driver uncomfortable. And then Gibbs just starts looking around like he sees something. He's like, why, why, why aren't we moving? Don't, don't you want to give me a ride? And the driver tries to blow him off. I'm only, you know, going about another mile. And Gibbs goes on with, what the hell did you pick me up for? You think I got nothing better to do with my life than to sit here and pass the time with you? And then the best part is Gib then leans over and just goes face to face with the driver and just screams, shit, brains! <laughs> That's where I lost it. And, and he goes, I don't think I want to ride like this after all. And then he gets out of the car and then goes back in and grabs Allison. And he goes, I think I'm going to take your wife if you don't mind. And then pulls her out and basically saves her. And then the, the driver drives off. I thought it was pretty good that even though the two of them aren't getting along, Gibbs still looking out for Allison. Then it kind of sets in motion that now they kind of have like a little truce. Like, okay, you know what? The two of us are stuck together. We got to get to California the next couple of days. We're just going to have to work together. At least you're trusting enough that I can continue this journey with you. 
I thought it was a good, a good scene. Oh, absolutely. And this really is Gibbs' hero moment because Allison is in real trouble. This guy is no bueno. This guy that she decided to hitchhike with, the driver, is this older gentleman who is potentially about to commit a sexual assault here. But of course, Gibb knew something bad was going to happen. And when he hops in, it's great because he, I mean, Cusack really goes for it in his performance, which he needs to, to uh, come across as this deranged person. And what I love in this scene, besides Cusack's performance and the lines, is Daphne Zuniga's reaction as he's freaking out because Zuniga, she's like, has this mixed look of terror on her face. And also it looks like she's about to break, like laugh. Yes. She has this smile on her face, just watching Cusack lose his mind. So you can't quite tell she breaking character and like almost about to laugh at his performance or she just in utter shock all around. Either way, it works. It totally works. So I love watching Daphne Zuniga's reaction to him in it. So yeah, a lot of fun. And thankfully, the fact, I think I'll take your wife too. <laughs> like when yes. he grabs her and like, she's like, oh, get the luggage, get the luggage before uh, this douchebag peels out in his pickup truck. They grab their bags last second. But yeah, I mean, Cusack saves the day. And you know what? There's a really nice moment just following that because I'm going to skip ahead to my complaints because I thought, Daphne Zuniga's character of Allison would be a little more jarred by that experience. I mean, that could have gone really wrong had Gibb not stepped in. Yes. But there is a nice moment here because Cusack can't help but be not serious. And she's trying to thank him for saving her. And then he finally calms down. That's Cusack and goes, are you okay? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, no, are you okay? And that's a nice moment, which kind of dissipated my complaint a little bit about her reaction to what may have just happened because he really has a nice, soft, genuinely uh, genuine moment of caring for her and her well-being. And she's like, yeah, you know, just take a moment, be like, realize what just almost happened. So yeah, all around. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. I'm going to take it back just a step. Okay. Everything that led up to it. And I'm just calling it a musical road trip. Because I love Tim Robbins in this, his small supporting role. So I'm going to describe it a little bit. Bill described what was leading up to this, as we know that that's the gist of it here, folks, is that Gibb is about to travel 3,000 miles to the West Coast to meet this sure thing, this bikini-clad blonde that we've seen only in photos that his buddy Lance has been sending him. So Gibb goes to that ride board, I guess is what they called it back then. It's so great that that's a thing. And uh, gets this ride. And it's great because the car pulls up to take him to California. And that's where we meet Marianne, played by Lisa Jane Persky, and Gary Cooper, played by Tim Robbins. And they're introducing themselves to Gibb. And it's just great because she's like, uh, we see her with like a, a hand puppet, like a hand sock puppet sort of thing to introduce herself. And we're like, oh boy, here we go. And she says hello. And then Tim Robbins introduces himself and says, I'm Gary Cooper, but not the Gary Cooper that's dead. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, holy shit. We've got a couple of characters in the front of this vehicle. So when Gibb hops in the back of the car, of course, he finds that dun, dun, dun. Allison is there in the back seat as well. She's gotten the same ride to go see her boyfriend out at UCLA in California. So the setup's complete. We know Gibb and Allison are stuck in the same car together and off on their road trip adventure. Of course, it's immediately apparent that they're not getting along. 
But the oh-so-chipper and way-too-cheery Marianne and Gary Cooper in the front decide to start the trip off by singing some show tunes. And Gary and Marianne commence singing Age of Aquarius. Um, boy. And cut to later on down the road. Gary and Mary are still singing. And Gary starts to notice that Gib and Allison are not partaking in the singing. Meanwhile, Gib has this daydream fantasy about meeting the sure thing. This is a, a kind of a runner throughout. He has these fantasies of finally get to California and meeting this girl, the sure thing. And we see Nicolette Sheridan. It's just great. She just tells him how she's going to sleep with him no matter what bullshit he feeds her. And then he snaps out of his fantasy, cutting back to this scene in the car on the road trip and a visibly upset Gary when Mary asks him what's wrong. And he says, I'm not going to sing if they're not going to join in. And she's like, come on, honey. He's like, no, they're ruining it for everyone. I love Tim Robbins in the scene. They end up spending a night in the hotel. Gary and Mary are in one bed and Gib and Allison in the other. And of course, Gib and Allison argue about who's going to sleep in the bed, which annoys Mary and Gary in the other bed. Next day on the road, a now refreshed Gib is eating junk food, shotgunning a Coors Light and taking out a bag of cheese balls to share with the group and everyone is grossed out. Soon after, a truck pulls up on the road, driving along next to them and a random dude is mooning them. Gib finds it hilarious. Allison is surprised. Gary is shocked. Gib is hooting and hollering when Allison says basically, oh, you would find that funny. And Gib replies, what the hell's wrong with you? you know, being What's the hell was wrong with being stupid once in a while? Does everything you do always have to be sensible? Didn't you ever get really shit-faced and maybe make a complete fool of yourself and still have an excellent time? Gib says Allison has no spontaneity when Allison responds with, and I love this line, spontaneity has its time and place. <laughs> Gib goes on to call her repressed and Allison's frustration grows. And then finally she snaps and she says, I'll show you spontaneity. And she takes her shirt and bra off, leans out of the car and flashes the truck next to them. And she's screaming, talk to mama boys. It's hilarious. It's great. Cut to immediately afterward, they've been pulled over by a cop for indecent exposure. And Gib chimes in with, oh yeah. And also driving with the load, not properly tied down, which doesn't help at all. Gary Cooper is at his breaking point. He's had it. He walks to the back of the car, tosses out Allison Gibbs' luggage and starts yelling at Mary, who's still inside the car in the front. Lock the doors, lock the doors. And she screams, oh. it's just fantastic. She freaks out, locks the doors. And now Gibb and Allison are left on the side of the road to fend them for themselves. And it's when their real adventure begins with the hitchhiking. And that leads into the scene that Bill just described, but just great fun. Tim Robbins is really funny. Lisa Jane Presky as Marianne is great and their reactions the entire time and their growing annoyance with uh, Gib and Allison is apparent. So some good comedy there. And we just see this wedge that continues to drive you know, itself between Allison and Gib, how they're opposites, obviously. But we then know Allison has it within her to have fun. She's just, she's a little bit repressed, but she's coming out of her shell a little bit. And that's what Gib does for her. Had a lot of fun with the road trip uh, sequence. Very good cameos from Tim Robbins and, and Lisa Jane Persky. Part of me wishes we saw a little bit more of them. Yeah. Certainly cold, leave them on the side of the road like that. Maybe at least take them to a bus stop or a hotel and then kind of sneak out. But outside of that, yes, the whole spontaneity when she says, yeah, there's time and place for that. That's That was just a classic line. Um, it's one of those you, you got to pay attention and ca catch and like, oh, yeah, that's kind of funny. But yeah, that's where it all starts. And I don't even know if we know where they're at at that point, how much further they have to go. 
But yeah, it's all hitchhiking from that point and trying to make their means to get to California. So it's definitely a good way to start their journey from here on and uh, hopefully form the bond that will put them in love by the end. <laughs> Absolutely. What else you got for this, Bill Bant? Uh, so for me, I think you're going to notice this just with uh, my favorite scenes and moments for the movie. I, I just kind of liked a little bit of the over-the-top stuff because that's just what I expected from John Cusack from his other films. And my next favorite scene is the bar scene. Um, so what happens is Allison and Gibb are now on their own. They've kind of started to forge a bond that they're going to work together to get out to California. And Gibb is getting the wrong impression that he thinks him and Allison have a thing. Right. And Gibb was showing Allison how to shotgun a beer and he goes into the bathroom and he thinks, okay, I'm, I'm feeling something and he's going to act on these feelings. And next thing you know, Allison's on the phone talking to Jason back in California and you know, saying that she's excited to see him. So this pisses Gibb off and he leaves the hotel that they're staying at for the night. And he winds up in this bar and he goes to the bar and he goes to order a drink and the bartender asks him for his ID. And he's like, are you of age? And he throws an ID on the bar and the bartender picks it up and he's like, okay, Dr. Livingston. And that, that right there just, just got me. And then uh, we have another fantasy sequence with Gib and the short thing. And once he gets out of it, he's sitting at the bar next to this gentleman. And this, like, I know I'm not an actor, but if there was a scene, if there was a character I could play in this movie, it would be this gentleman at the bar. Everything that came out of his mouth just cracked me up. So he's a little, we'll just say he's, he's a little bit overweight and he's literally sitting next to Gib. And there's only one other person at the bar. So there's no reason for him to, to sit next to him, but there he is. And he's trying to make a friend and he just spouts out this random thing, how he got the sweepstakes in the mail. And he's wondering if he should submit the paperwork for the sweepstakes. And he looks over at the cocktail waitress that's there. And she just gives him a look like, leave me alone. And he turns to Gib and tells him that uh, the waitress is French and he's never been to France. And then the gentleman at the end of the bar, is this, they call him the, cow the cowboy, says that he's been to France with his wife. And this conversation is going nowhere. It's just so silly and out of place. And then the guy goes, I had some more fried food for lunch. I know, I know. I shouldn't have had it, but I couldn't help myself. Do you think I lack self-discipline? It's just so bizarre. But I just loved that guy. And then the guy talks about wondering why, what's wrong with him. He's like, I'm a good looking guy. And of course, Gib agrees with him. Gib says that he's a good looking guy. And this gentleman's like, yeah, you are. And Gib's like, I am. And then the cowboy <laughs> chimes in at the end of the bar. We're all good looking guys. And Gib comes back and says, that's right, we are. And it's Christmas time. I'm going to buy you a drink. <laughs> and the, the big guy goes something light and Gibb goes like what like a nice chablis <laughs> and the guy's like no a spritzer and Gibb's like spritzer it's like yeah and Gibb says to the bartender give this man a trough of spritzer that just cracked me up and you cowboy guy what do you want to drink and the cowboy's like I'll have a beer and he's like get that cowboy a beer and then they start singing and it's just so nonsensical I just love it I just wish I'm like oh I wish I could have played this guy and I was like, oh, I would love to have seen this guy in something else. But unfortunately, he passed away like right before the movie came out. Oh, bummer. If, yeah, if you saw the condition of him, he is quite overweight. But just the way he did his drunk voice was just great. There was just something very inviting about it. 
it's just something very peaceful with that guy that I just really enjoyed. I just really liked him. I just really loved that bar scene. Just the three of them were hilarious. I could just like, sit and listen to the three of them talk for hours on end. It was just kind of funny. Outstanding. I was just laughing to myself as you were describing that whole scene. It's it's great. And when I first watched this film, by the way, I have the film playing in the background right now as we are doing this podcast, just for reference. And I look up to it, you know, every once in a while. And I kid you not, Bill Bant, that scene just started at the bar. It's fantastic. Perfect time. So I'm watching it right now. Chestnuts roasting on it. When they break into song, it's great. I initially didn't understand why the scene was in the movie. I didn't know how it served the story, but it just doesn't matter. It's fun. It's watching Gib drown in his sorrows a little bit. Cause as you mentioned, he's a, you know, he's starting to fall for Allison a bit. And he thought they had something. And she then just breaks the moment and goes to call her boyfriend at UCLA. And he realizes, oh, maybe I don't have a shot. And when he goes to that bar, you nailed it, man. The actor playing the uh, the heavyset gentleman is wonderful. He really plays a great drunk. Yes. I, he like that's pretty darn good drunk acting because he's a little over the top and not too like caricature over the top. And he's clearly a little infatuated with the cocktail waitress. And he's talking to her, saying, asking these random questions or making random statements about the sweepstakes or should he lose weight, et cetera. And it's like, oh, my God, I know that guy. I know that guy. And when they start telling each other that, yeah, you're a good looking guy. I'm a good looking guy. We're all good looking guys. Bill, we've all been there. I've had yeah. that conversation. <laughs> yes. I thanks. literally had that conversation while drinking with my buddies back in the day when we're all single and wondering why the heck we can't get a girl. And we're all drowning in our woes just going, yeah, man, no, you're awesome, dude. You're great. Yeah, you could. You're a catch, you know, or whatever it is. You're good looking. Yep. For, for a guy, you know, and it's that weird, but kind of like we're just loving on each other, trying to pump each other up and say, you know, give each other a little little liquid courage and confidence. Uh, anyway, totally relatable. So when I was rewatching the scene and I'm watching it right here, they, they just nail that mood. And it doesn't matter if it moves the story forward at all. These actors are great. The old guys at the bar. We know them, the regulars at the bar and uh he got Cusack down in beers and double shots of bourbon. He's going for it. Yes, he is. And he shows back up at the room with a few more empty cans of beer. He really tied one on that night. No, he certainly did. Great, great stuff, man. I appreciate you covering that scene. Yeah, and finally, yeah, I'm just going to go with my final favorite scene here, which I'm calling Connected Through a Shared Experience, because at this point, we've seen Allison and Gib on their road trip adventure, as well as their hitchhiking adventures, and Allison almost being assaulted and then having to pretend to be pregnant to get another ride for them. And ultimately, she forgets her schedule book back at the hotel room, and which had all her money in it. Well, Gib and Allison end up on the side of the road in the rain. And at the moment they feel all is lost, she discovers she has a credit card to use in case of emergency, which this is. So cut to all of a sudden from that rain sequence <laughs> in a nice and dry, fancy restaurant that happens to accept credit cards. Back then, only certain restaurants, I guess, accepted credit cards. Gib buys Allison a rose with her own money. It's pretty funny. And he tells her a sweet story about growing up on a farm, going on camping trips, staring up at the stars. And slowly we see that Gib and Allison are connecting here. They end up getting a nice hotel room for the night. And this time they end up sharing the bed versus previously on their road trip. And finally, Gib starts to ask Allison about her boyfriend, Jason. And what's he like? 
And she says he's everything a girl would want and that they share common goals and have made plans together. And it's actually a good scene when I when I revisited this because on my second watch, because Gib realizes she wants some things that he probably can't give her, at least not now. As she's describing her future with Jason, she seems to really like exactly where she's at in that moment with Gib. And Gib just turns over and says goodnight. And then he has another fantasy sequence. And this would be the last fantasy sequence, which begins with Gib with nothing on besides his leather jacket and briefs. I love the fact that in all of the fantasy sequences he has about the sure thing, he's wearing his leather jacket as if that's the best version of himself that he always sees. So in this version here of this fantasy sequence, he's got his leather jacket on, his briefs, and he goes upstairs and we see what we think is the sure thing taking a shower. But when Gib opens the door, it's Allison. Oh, now Gib's really fallen for Allison. Cut to the next morning, Gib wakes up in the bed to find that he is spooning with Allison with his arms around her, and they both find it quite nice for a moment. And Gib then hops out of bed awkwardly and says, I didn't do anything. And she's like, I know, I know. But they see that something is something is growing between them here, possibly a new love. So I enjoyed that because, man, this movie is just really nostalgic for me. I, it just brings me back again to my freshman year in college when I was young, and it's just, it's new love, and it's awkward, and it's funny, and it's weird, especially when you're put into these awkward situations, especially on a road trip. It's a great device for these types of scenarios. And yeah, to just, they're, they're just trying to figure out what do you, you know, you start asking these big questions. What do you want? Where do you see yourself in the future? And who do you want to be with? And it all goes out the window because all that matters is what's happening in the moment and who you're with in that moment. Do you like being with them or not? And if you do, why not see where it goes? And it's as simple as that. And it kind of takes a minute to figure it out. But I remember those times, better times, or I don't know, they were just, they were good times, youthful, young love. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good scene too, because I think Allison kind of opens her eyes to the fact that everything isn't planned out for you. Right. You just got to ride the wave and hope things turn out the best. So yeah, it's a good moment between the two of them. For me, for my final favorite scene is the rain scene. And yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's great. Allison has this planner that, Everything's planned out for her. The trip's planned out for her. How long it's going to take to get out there. The money she has is planned out of how much we're going to spend through this trip because they only have so much. And she leaves it at the hotel that they're staying at. So they have nothing. So Gib and Allison are on the side of the road and Gib's complaining that he's hungry. He's complaining that he's cold. And Allison's just had enough. And, the, you know, the classic line of, you know, how could it get any worse? And then surprise, surprise, it's a downpour. And they go to try to find shelter and they find the shack and Gib kicks down the door and they get in. They're like, oh, we're safe. But the shack has no roof. So they're still getting wet. So they continue on and they find this trailer that's in the middle of nowhere. And it's great because Gib tries to open it and he's like, it's locked. Good. This is very good. It's important that we that this place should have an airtight security system in the middle <laughs> of nowhere. So Gib's trying to break the lock. And while he's doing that, Allison digs through her bags and she finds a credit card. And she's like, oh, I have a credit card. And Gib thinks at first that they could use it to pick the lock. And Gib's like, we need something different. And then Allison keeps repeating, like, I have a credit card, meaning that they have some money. So Gib's excited. He's like, oh, thank God we have a credit card so we can continue our journey. And Allison does the classic, like, oh, my dad told me specifically can only use it in case of emergency. And Gib, just as sarcastic as ever, just comes back with, well, maybe something will come up. Meaning here they are in the pouring rain. Right. They have no food, no money. 
I think it might be a good time to use the credit card. And then that takes us into the dinner scene. So for that, it just had the two laugh out moments it was was him trying to get into the trailer and just being pissed off that you know this little piece of junk trailer has a lock that they can't get in. And then the sarcasm with Allison finding a credit card and Oh, I don't know if I should use it at this moment, but yeah, you really need to. The moment is now, and it's great. There's a lot of laugh out loud moments in this sequence for me, and it's brief. One, after they've discovered they have no money and they're sitting on the side of the road at night with Cusack looking so pathetic, and he's playing it for sympathy because she's sitting next to him. And just as she's about to chew her last piece of gum, he says, I'm starving. And then- I'm freezing. My feet hurt. And she's like, okay, here's half of my piece of gum. And he chews it. I swallowed my gum. <laughs> it just makes me laugh every time. And then once the rain starts downpouring and they find a shack before they find that little trailer and they run into the shack and like, oh, thank goodness. And it's still raining and they look up and of course there's no roof on the shack. There's some great lines in there. And these two, I, I appreciated their chemistry. They worked off one another really well with the, the timing of uh, their delivery and Fun relationship development. So I wanted to give real quick shout out before we go to our next segment to uh, Bill Bant. Help me out here. What is the name of the actor that plays Jimbo Gibbs college roommate? Oh, Joshua Cadman. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed that character. Uh, that actor did not go on to do too much after this, but there's a moment in this early in the film when Cusack's nervous about going on the study date with Allison and he doesn't know what to say because she's super intellectual and Jimbo explains to him that he should just be natural and like gives this delivery like he has Gibbs sit down with him on the bed and he's like this is what you need to say and he delivers this whole little speech and the look that Gibb Cusack has on his face like he in the moment is just like swept away by Jimbo who's like you can feel that yeah. <laughs> you could and Jimbo is this big football player type delivering these lines, which we know are crap, but he sells it. And Gib is just looking at him with these puppy dog eyes like, oh, and then at the last minute goes, that is a load of horse shit. And he pulls a move where Gib puts his hand over Jimbo's mouth and pretends to kiss him. And I haven't seen that move in forever. I know. And it's really funny. I forgot that was a thing for a minute way back when and of course Jimbo's kind of disgusted in the moment but it's a real like bro moment and we see then obviously Gib tries to use those lines on Allison and fails and we see him use those lines in his fantasy sequence with the sure thing where it sort of works but great great moment I just wanted to give a shout out to that actor who plays Jimbo because uh, I thought he was good for the brief period of time he was in it and uh, I would have actually liked to have seen him in this more but Wanted to give him a shout out. Yeah, I think that move now would be like an HR nightmare move. That, that oh, yeah. You call the office. Yeah, that's, that's probably putting your hand over anymore. someone's mouth and pretending to kiss them. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah that, that doesn't fly nowadays. All right, let's move on to our next segment, which is Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Well, because although this movie is delicious, it does have beer shotgun holes. Yes, it doesn't have those beer shotgun holes. We just file a complaint with the complaint department. So, Jason, you have anything for Swiss cheese or complaints? Yeah, my first one is real quick, Bill Bant. Two-on-two football. Was that a thing or what? We had this as a complaint when we did our big chill podcast. 
we talked, I don't know. Is that still a thing? Do people, please let us know. Listeners, chime in here. Is two on two football? I get it. You go out into the park with a couple of friends and you just want to throw the ball around, but it's just doesn't quite make sense competitively. What, what, what say you, Bill Bant? I think the one that got me is the stereotypical two kids playing Frisbee somewhere in the courtyard at the college. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, my four years at school, I never saw anybody play Frisbee. Yeah. And- you could play frisbee okay. all year at our school. No, that, that was more bothersome than the football. Well, the football sequence in this is actually a lot of fun, thanks to Cusack delivering his commentary. Like he's chiming out, and he's it's kind of like the uh football sequence in Wedding Crashers, which is funny because of Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson yelling out plays that they don't even understand. And here it's Cusack kind of narrating the the game, and it's funny because he keeps looking at the guys across from him. You're dead meat, you're dead meat. So it's more amusing, but still trying to understand the two-on-two football. Yeah. Anyway. Minimum three-on-three. Three. I can't do two-on-two. Two. Right. My first complaint is uh, that guy who screams out, it's Friday night at the uh, college. Right. He looks older than I do currently. Yeah. <laughs> he is what are you, looking very mature. senior? Yes. Yeah. That guy has That's more scary. hair on his chest than I have in my whole body. <laughs> I love it. Here we go, Bill Bant. Gib and Allison, after uh, their attempts to hitchhike, they finally arrive at a bus stop. And we soon find out that Gib can't afford the bus to LA because the bus is $89.50 and he's only got $18.77. So he says he'll just hitchhike the rest of the way. Allison then gives him an additional $50 to help him on his way. But instead of getting on the bus herself, as Bill mentioned, In a sweet moment, she instead decides to remain behind with Gib. So they both go to a hotel for the night. Gib decides Allison needs a lesson in how to shotgun a beer. And after a moment of near intimacy, Allison pulls away, decides she needs to check in her boyfriend. Okay, we talked about that. And then Gib goes to the bar. We meets the other drunks and they do the thing. So now we know that Gib had $68.77 total. He would walk to the bar to drown his sorrows, and he buys drinks for his newfound friends, his Christmas caroling pals, and everybody in the bar. Then the next morning, Gib rushes Allison out of the hotel room to get back to hitchhiking, and she forgets her schedule book as a result. Cut to after hitching a ride with the sweeter older lady, they arrive at a rest stop to go to a restaurant to chow down, only to discover Allison doesn't have her book along with the cash she left in it. And Gib gets mad at her. This is my long-winded story to get to my complaint, because I'm like, wait, what? Gib just spent all of his money on booze the night before, and it's really partially his fault she forgot her book because he was rushing her to get out of the room. Shouldn't Allison be livid with him? Yeah, he has no right to be mad at her about that. That was a big complaint. My complaint was there's no way she was leaving that hotel without that planner. That would have been the first thing she would have had. It's like, how does she not remember that she doesn't have her planner? That was more of a complaint to me, but Gib has no right to yell at her about missing the planner because you're completely relying on her to get you to California at this point. So that's on you, man. Yeah, and he had money, which he could have used somewhat for breakfast and just blew it on booze the night before, which is fine. But then he can't be mad at her for not having money and so now they're in dire straits right and i love the fact too that that morning he has no hangover ah no god young but i'm sorry even when i was that young if i had had that much to drink i would be in bad shape the next day oh hell yeah there's no way what else you got for complaints 
Yeah, this is a point. They never released the soundtrack for this movie. How is that possible? Rod Stewart, Huey Lewis in the News, The Eagles, Lionel Richie, Ray Charles, Sammy Hagar, John Waite, Wang Chung. Unbelievable. Yeah. What a lineup. It's incredible. Would have been in my collection. Did you mention the cars in there too? No, I missed the cars. Yeah. There's so many great tunes. There's a ton. Agreed. I would have liked a little more. I keep saying, like, we always, I always say this. I want more of this character, more, but I do. There's some characters. Sometimes there's these surprise supporting cast and characters that uh, I'm just like, oh, that, that dude's fun. But maybe, you know, in this case, I wanted a little more Vivica Linfors as Professor Taub. I thought she was great. She's got three solid scenes in this, uh, just in the classroom. But I don't know. I was thinking maybe one more scene between her and Gib. Maybe, you know, Gib goes to her to seek some advice. Her being like this, the wiser, older sage. And I would, yeah, just one more scene with her. I thought she was great and could have played just a slightly more influential role with Gib, possibly. Did you have uh, any other complaints? Yeah, just just one more. into it. Yeah, just one more about the that class because, as I remember, college, you basically had fall classes, spring classes, but for some reason, their English class continued into the spring. Do you ever have a class that did that? Uh, No, yeah, that's an interesting point. Good call. I thought that was kind of weird. I kept thinking, I was like, did I have any year long classes? No, I don't think so. Especially the English class, I don't see that being all year. If someone did, or maybe maybe the school did trimesters. Maybe that's what it was. There we go. Right. We found right. the justification. Okay. This movie's perfect. Yes, I feel better now. Here's one. Uh, I got two quick ones. One, people always mistake the name Jason for Justin. It's a real thing. Trust me. I know from personal experience, it happens all the time and it's okay. But I thought that was funny. Uh, so it's not really that big of a complaint. But at the end of the party sequence, when everybody's now at UCLA, Gib is yelling at Allison and they're both mad at each other and jealous of each other. And he's like, what's his name? You know, Justin. She's like, Jason. I'm like, ah, see, that's a thing. Justin and Jason always get mixed up. And then finally, I'm not sure young John Cusack in this film, uh, his open mouth kissing is great. I'm just saying you don't, you don't lead. You don't go into the kiss with your mouth open, wide open like that already. Just saying. Wow. it's a good catch. <laughs> I'm sure he became a much better kisser after this film. He was very, you know, he was just a kid. Can't believe he was 16, 17 at the time of this filming. Yeah, I'm going to watch uh, Say Anything, see if it improves. Yeah, right. <laughs> Which is kind of funny because he gets younger in that one, technically. Yeah, right? Four, yeah, four years later, he goes from freshman to summer of senior year of high school. That's hilarious. Oh, man. Yeah, he just had that baby face for a while. Yeah, he did. All right, time to move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Who do we choose this week? This week, we are choosing this actress whom I've mentioned already. I'm going with Vivica Linfors. I should say we are going with Vivica Linfors as Professor Taub. And this is from IMDb. Vivica Linfors, or Linfors, was originally from Uppsala, Sweden. She had also worked as an actress in Sweden before she was brought to Hollywood in 1946 by Warner Brothers in the hope that she would be a new Greta Garbo or Ingrid Bergman. She appeared with Ronald Reagan in her first Hollywood film and also Don Siegel's Night Unto Night in 1949. 
but perhaps she was best known as a stage actress, and she returned to Sweden in August of 1995 to tour with the play In Search of Strindberg. She did a ton of film and television throughout the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Just look at her filmography on IMDb. She's got 150 credits or so. It's crazy. A couple notables from that are The Adventures of Don Juan in 48 and The Way We Were in 1973. She was in a segment of Creep Show from 1982. She does this in 85, the sure thing. She was Nurse X in The Exorcist 3 in 1990, and she played Catherine Langford in Stargate in 94. Vivica fortunately passed away in 1995 at the age of 74. But a couple quick fun trivia notes. She was a child. They, this is how they say it on IMDb. She was a childminder. It means babysitter of Chevy Chase. She was a childminder of Chevy Chase. And when she was included in the In Memoriam segment of the Academy Awards in 1996, the Academy showed a scene from The Sure Thing where she had a supporting role, of course, as a professor. And in the scene, she's smiling and spreading her arms. Vivica Linfors is our Hey, It's That Actor this week. Yeah, good call. There's a, certainly a lot of choices in that one. I really didn't recognize her, to be honest. But she really lit up all the scenes that she was in and made you wish you had actual professors like that in college. Absolutely. And I couldn't say I really recognized her either. I just found her engaging and I loved her delivery, her passionate delivery. And she was the Sally Kellerman before Sally Kellerman. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was about to say. Imagine having her and Sally Kellerman at, yeah. at one semester back to back. I'm like, man, that's that's a good year at school. Because, yeah, immediately I was like, oh, this is the character we see again. Mm -hmm. You're following in back to school. Yeah. All right. Moving on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about the short thing? All right, let's get into it. A little behind the scenes, a little BTS. The origins of the film came from an experience writer Stephen L. Bloom had while attending Brown University. During this time, his best friend was attending Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and was constantly recounting the good times he was having while absolutely nothing was going on for Bloom. Out of pity over his situation, his friend arranged for him to meet a sure thing over spring break. So Bloom found a ride through a ride board and drove to Atlanta, with a number of other students. Yeah, it's a crazy story. Based on a true story. Yeah, why did it do? Inspired by true events. <laughs> um, so director Rob Reiner admits to feeling extremely uncomfortable every time he had to film one of the sex scenes between the teen actors. Not only that, Reiner also didn't want to be the one shooting the scene at the beginning of the film, where Nicholas Sheridan, who plays the short thing, oils herself up on the beach. So he left cinematographer Robert Elswit behind the camera instead. Huh. All right. Makes sense, I suppose. I get it. Well, when casting for the part of Walter Gibson began, director Rob Reiner initially refused to meet with John Cusack because the actor was underaged. Casting directors Jane Jenkins and Janet Hershenson convinced Reiner to audition Cusack, after which Reiner knew he had to have him for the part. At the time, Anthony Edwards was seriously be being considered for the lead, but after Cusack got the part, Edwards was offered the best friend role instead. At the time of his casting, Cusack was still 16 and had not yet graduated from high school, so producer Roger Birnbaum had to go to court to have him emancipated. During the filming of the movie, which was from March to April of 84, Birnbaum then became Cusack's legal guardian. See stuff. So both leads are named after science fiction writers. 
So Walter Gib Gibson after the shadow creator, Walter B. Gibson and Allison Bradbury after Ray Bradbury. Robin Wright unsuccessfully auditioned for the title role, but director Rob Reiner was impressed with her acting range. So she was hired for a project Reiner long dreamed of called The Princess Bride. So most of the East Coast college scenes, uh, the ones without the snow, were filmed at the University of the Pacific. Um, I think for most of the scenes, they were used different colleges just so they wouldn't pinpoint one. But I think one of them, uh, I think the one where he's running through the quad is supposedly Cornell. That's so. what I got. Yep. Excellent. Well, that's all I got. Uh, did you have anything else, Bill Bant? That is it. So let's move on to box office. So The Short Thing was released on March 1st, 1985 in 1,115 theaters. On an estimated budget of $4.5 million, it grossed $18.1 million domestically. It debuted number five at the box office behind Missing in Action 2, The Beginning, starring Chuck Norris, which placed third. It would stay in the top 10 for another three weeks, placing no higher than ninth. The Sure Thing would be the 47th highest grossing movie in the United States, just ahead of another Chuck Norris movie, Invasion USA. When growing up in the 80s, we would watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear the reviews and watch clips of upcoming movies. Their review of The Sure Thing was unanimous. Two thumbs up. Roger really liked the chemistry between Cusack and Zuniga, even though the story was predictable. The movie was done with style, taste, and tact, and the ending made him happy. Gene didn't enjoy the movie as much as Roger, but found it appealing. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 86%, and it has an IMDb rating of 7.0, which takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about the sure thing? Bill Bant, can yes. you call this a Christmas movie? No. Like outside of the fact that they mentioned that they're leaving on Christmas break, there's really no sign of it being Christmas. I mean, the fact they get to UCLA so late in December and the campus is still open, that wouldn't be the case. Usually, what, college ends second, worst case, second week in December? Right. And everyone's gone. You don't see really anything Christmassy whatsoever. You just know it's kind of cold. Could took place during spring break. Could took place at the end of the school year. I wouldn't say it's a Christmas movie. I would agree. I wouldn't call it a Christmas movie, but there is a Christmas element, obviously. I think the most Christmassy scene happens to be in one of your favorite scenes, which takes place in the bar because they're singing chestnuts over a rope. You know, it's, it's, it has a Christmas feel. Uh, other than that, yeah, you see some snow, I believe, on the ground when, they're, when they finally hitchhike with the trucker, when the truck right. pulls up. Uh, but yeah, when they get to the party at UCLA, I mean, it's like a luau party. It has the complete opposite feel of, of Christmas. What's even funny with that bar scene, even if it was in the middle of summer, I wouldn't have been surprised that guy broke out with that song. Chest. <laughs> and it would have worked for me, regardless. Uh, I love that you love that scene so much. Um, I've got plenty more here. What else do you, or what do you have for additional thoughts and deep questions? Well, you know how, how I always love talking about the ages of the characters. And we've mentioned that, you know, John Cusack was uh, 17 when they were filming. So we have uh, Daphne Zuniga, who's Allison, was 22. Anthony Edwards was also 22. Nicholas Sheridan was 21. And then Boyd Gaines, who played Jason, Allison's uh, boyfriend, 31 years old. Oh, wow. Good for them. Yeah. I love it. Hey, Bill Bant. Yes. Guess what? We've got another 80s movie with no parents. 
No parents in this movie. Love it. It's awesome. Barely a mention of the parents. But uh, yeah, it was funny. Sometimes I forget that they were teenagers in this. They're supposed to be like 17, 18 years old. I mean, being freshmen in college. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, and I was wondering too, is, you know, it's Christmas break and they're on the road, which can be hazardous and they're still pretty darn young. So I was like, what? Not even a phone call to the parents? Exactly. Why where's some money? Yeah. If I were the parents, I'd be a little worried about, about the kids out there on the road during the holidays. I don't know. Yeah, because you don't really find out where Lance and Gib are from in the beginning. So where nothing. they go to school. But you know they both go away to school. And you don't need it. No, I'm it's not a complaint at all. It's just no, a, no, no, an no, observation. But it, just, yeah. it just ties in with the whole parent thing because you would yeah. think during winter break your parents would expect you to come home. Because most schools do close down. Right. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So Gibb only mentions his parents when he does the pool rant. And right. then Allison really only mentions his parents, her, her dad, but the credit card. And that's it. That's what I was thinking. She does mention them briefly uh, when on the phone with her boyfriend. It's kind of in the background. Oh, okay. And it says, my parents would only pay for a plane ticket if I'm coming home. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. gotcha. But that's it. Yeah. And it's great. And you know, again, I'm I'm going to make a call back to my conversation with Katie the evening prior to this because talking about these coming, why these coming of age movies resonate with us, maybe, and why we connect to them so deeply, probably has something to do with at least a little bit with the fact that the parents either absent or supremely negligent or whatever, because it really is about the point of view from the kids, the teenagers, you know, going through it. And it doesn't need to be mired in drama with the parents or what the parents, how the parents are seeing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. We had such a freedom back then that we don't have now. Our kids don't have now. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Unfortunately, it just seems like we think things are so much worse, but I mean, they were bad back then too. We just weren't as aware of it then. And luckily we all, we all survived or most, you know, a good percentage of us did. Yeah, absolutely. Fun times, man. Bill Bant, you got yes. plenty of hitchhiking in this. Hitchhiking. That was a thing. I guess it still is to a certain extent. I Googled it. I just Googled hitchhiking and immediately found these websites. Tips for hitchhiking. 14 ways to safely hitchhike across the United States. Shout out to Nomadic Matt. Look at nomadicmat.com. Nomadic Matt says everything from be confident to looking presentable, to avoiding arguments and being prepared and staying in control. Those are some of the 14 ways to safely hitchhike across the U.S. There's also a through hiker's guide to hitchhiking. Everything you need to know about hitchhiking. Hitchhiking 101. So obviously it's still a thing. Just thinking about hitchhiking. Have you ever hitchhiked, Bill Bant? There's a question. No. Well, you know know what? I lie. I did technically once. It was my freshman year of college, and I had bought tickets to the Miami Dolphins versus Philadelphia Eagles, and I had no idea that the stadium was so far away from the UM campus. So I didn't like I didn't go on the street hitchhiking. I was in the lobby of the um, the towers, and we're waiting for kids that were hopefully wearing either Dolphins or Eagles jerseys to come down, and then I would ask them like, "Are you guys going to the game? Can I have a ride?" That's about as close to hitchhiking I can. And then these kids were like, yeah, we, you know, we can take you. 
and they took us and their car broke down when we got to the game. So then in order to get back, I had to, because then we had to pile into someone else's car. I literally had to ride back to campus in the trunk of someone's car. Awesome. I love that. Learned something new all the time. The one time I can recall, I wasn't technically hitchhiking, but I was back in town, that being Chi-Town, Chicago. It was for a wedding. And this had to, this was post-college. So this is probably early 2000s. I was in town for a wedding and I was with a bunch of my high school friends from back there. And we were crashing at a friend's apartment. However, I met a lovely lady at this particular bar. We were all hanging out the night before the wedding and was dancing with this girl. And all of a sudden, my friends decided to ditch me. So I walked out of the bar in Chicago. I didn't know my friend's address, the place where we were crashing. I just knew what the building looked like. And I was like, (laughs) guys, where is everybody? And this is before cell phones and everything. Like, it just... I had no way of contacting them. I'm like, how am I going to get back to my buddy's apartment? They all left me here in the middle of the night. I'm walking along the street in the general direction I think I'm supposed to go in. And some guy pulls up. He's like, hey, you lost. You need a ride. And I was like, yeah. And I'm sure I was, I had a few drinks in me. So I was feeling pretty loose. It's like, sure. And I get in the car with this guy. And thank goodness. I recognized my friend's apartment building. We, I found it. We found it. Ooh. But this guy was like, hey, you want to hang out for a little bit? He started getting a little flirtatious with me. Let's oh. just put it that way. Yeah. And I saw it kind of happening pretty quickly. And I was like, thanks, but no thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for the ride and got out of there. So I don't think I wasn't in fear of my life. It was an Allison moment. I <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, no, no John Cusack to save me hanging yeah. out in the in the trunk or the the bed of the truck. But yeah, uh, yeah, it was a weird scenario. But I was a capable young guy. You know, I wasn't in fear of my life or in fear of being assaulted. But it was a little awkward. Let's just put it that way. Be careful, ladies and germs out there. If you decide to hop into a car with a stranger, let's just put it that way. Anything else? I got one. Yeah, here's the big one. Okay, from me, from moi. This might be obvious, maybe not. Here we go. If you had to choose one actor from the 1980s to be an ambassador for that genre of movies, who would it be? Wow. Yeah, it might be recency bias. But yeah, I think I would go with John Cusack. But I mean, there's so many. Go Molly Ringwald, Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah, you can almost go anybody from The Breakfast Club. Yeah. I mean, Emilio Estevez, Andrew McCarthy. Yep. Oh, Matthew Broderick. Absolutely. Damn. It makes you think for a second, but I I don't know. I, it'd be tough. I, I think I would end up landing on John Cusack for me personally. Yeah, I'm going to stick with John Cusack. So if the question is, who would you choose in a, as an ambassador for 80s coming of age movies? It would be Cusack. Yes. Yeah. Because he, he did so many. Yeah. That's a good one. Because I jumped to it. I almost put this in my initial thoughts. And then I was like, I'm going to save this for questions. Because I was so ready to name John Cusack as the ambassador or representative. And then I started thinking about it just like we were doing here in real time. So Between him and Molly Ringwald. 
Yeah, she's a great, and I do I do not mean to discount the the our wonderful actresses from that genre at all. I apologize if that's how it came off because they're she's definitely qualifies. Uh, I'm just trying to think of like volume, but that's the thing with like most of Kuzak's movies kind of fall in that genre in the '80s, whereas like other people maybe one or two. Like right, but when you're Thompson. talking Ringwald between Sixteen Candles, Pretty in Pink, and Breakfast Club, I mean those are yeah. huge. <laughs> Even for keeps. Yeah. She did a ton too. So, yeah. So I would say, yeah, the, the couple would be John Cusack. And <laughs> they should go as Molly a couple. Room. Yes, yeah. as a couple. That's our couple. Love it. Our 80s coming of age couple. All right. So let's move on to our rating. So, Jason, on a scale of one to five schedule books, what do you give the sure thing? I'm giving this three really, really solid schedule books, Bill Bant. I like this movie. It's not a brain buster and it's really worth watching if you haven't seen it. Like I had not seen it. And after, you know, posting about it and prepping for this, I know a lot of you out there are big fans of this and I totally get why it's got that young John Cusack really starting to hone his craft and owning what he's good at as an actor, basically being himself. I would imagine. I like the chemistry between he and Zuniga. I, appreciated the relationship development in this actually uh it wasn't what i was expecting from the movie it's got a solid supporting cast it's simple lighthearted fun with some great lines and it's a feel-good 80s movie what what else could i ask for i appreciated the good message here you know gibbs starts with what is like the relationship version of flash over substance just wants to get laid and then eventually goes for the substance over the flash uh you know and allison herself breaks out of her old strict buttoned up ways and opens up to fun and expression and new possibilities and new relationships. Uh, so there's some good messaging in here and some growth and I promote it. Anyway, three schedule books for me. I, I really had fun with this. What about you, Bill Bant? I'm giving it three and a half. And some of the reasons that you said two, just great chemistry between Kuzak and Zuniga, just seeing the jumping off point for Kuzak, what is to come in the other movies that he would do throughout the eighties. And there was something that you said at the beginning that really I was like, yeah, this movie just makes you happy. Even that that ending scene when the professor is reading his essay and you find out that Gibb does not sleep at the short thing and Allison just turns and, and looks at him and he asks, you know, are you still with Jason? And she says no. And you see they're about to kiss. I really wanted them to kiss in the classroom. And yeah. I was like, oh, but they do the cutaway and they do the kiss on top of the um, the roof of the library where things kind of went awry from the get-go. It, it just put a smile on my face. It, it just made yeah. me happy. And uh, I'm glad we went back to revisit this because I kind of had a, uh, I don't know if I'm going to like this, uh, watching it again all these years later, but uh, it changed my tune to it. So yeah, it's a, it's a happy movie. Three and a half schedule books for me. I love it, man. And yes, that final scene with the kiss on the rooftop of the library. Also, Under the Stars, which is a nice callback to Cusack's character, Gibb, being a fan of, of the stars. Yes. And, and such, and he tells the story about looking up at the stars early in the movie. Great stuff, man. All right. Uh, I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. If you have any comments, questions, or recipes to share, please email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. 
is the final month of season three. And for our next episode, we are covering our first animated movie. We will be joined by a special guest to discuss The Brave Little Toaster with voices by John Lovitz and Bill Hartman. Have an excellent week, everyone. To quote the cowboy guy from Bill Bant's favorite scene in a bar, I was in Paris once with my wife. Boy, am I glad she's dead. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.